Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, welcome to uh, Center Street, uh, those of you who are joining us online, also those of you who are um, meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, um, in Bridgeland, down in South Calgary, and also the Crowfoot Theaters in Northwest Calgary. Um, you know, I have never met a person um, who said, my goal is to have a miserable life. Uh, I've met some pretty miserable people in my time. Um, who described a sad state of affairs, you know, either in their marriage or their personal life of family or workplace situation, and often would acknowledge to me um, the negative role that they played um, in the mess that they find themselves in. But never once did they say, my passion, my mission in life is to make my life or the life of others miserable. No one's ever said that to me. And the reality is healthy people aspire to live loving, peaceful, joy-filled, and fulfilling lives. And the question is, if that is what people want, why is there so much misery in our world? Why is there so much relational carnage in our world? Why are so many marriages and families crumbling? Why are, is there so much conflict and unhappiness in the workplace? Why is there so much abuse and violence in the streets of our city and between people groups and nations of the world? Well, there are many explanations in the literature, of course. Countless books have been written on this particular subject. But fundamentally, it's because more often than not, whether we want to admit it or not, we decide we're going to do things our way rather than God's way. We decide we want to do what we want to do rather than what God says is the right thing to do. The Bible calls this sin. And even though our culture tries to convince us that sin is really an old school idea, no longer relevant to our free, liberal, and progressive society. The truth is, sin is still the best explanation for the confusion, the despair, the lack of fulfillment that we see in lives today, and the hurt and devastation that we often see in relationships. And this is the reason that our loving God warns us about sin why it comes up in the scriptures a lot. The same way that a loving and caring parent warns their children not to run into busy streets or not to touch or go near an open flame. Romans 6.23 says, there is a cost that comes with sin. It says the wages of sin is death. The cost of doing things your way rather than God's way is immense. It's death in one form or another. The death of true hope and peace within individuals. The death of a relationship. And yes, even physical death. And we need to understand that our Heavenly Father is not our enemy. He is, is not some sadistic despot 
who, who really enjoys and gets kind of a thrill out of spoiling our fun or making our life miserable. No, God loves you. He is for you. He cares for you deeply. And like any loving, emotionally healthy father, he has your best interests at heart in all things. And even his negative commands in Scripture are given with our best in mind. <coughs> you know, one of the reasons that Jesus, God the Son, left the splendor and the glory of heaven and came to our planet as the God-man was to show us what God's really like, to really show us the heart of God. And Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. That is God's desire for us, that we would live a full life, not a carefree life or a life free from hardship, but a joy-filled, peace-filled, meaningful life. And that is why he warns us about sin. Why here in Colossians 3, which we've been making our way through, God calls us to put it to death. Which, of course, brings us back to the question I started addressing last week, and that is how can we be set free from the power of sin in our life? Not how can we be set free from sin itself or the presence of sin or even the temptation of sin because sin is alive and well in our world and will be with us until we go to glory. But how can we be set free from the power or the grip that sin has on our life so that we can live this victorious full life that God wants for us. You see, many of us, we come to the conclusion that we have no control over sin. That we're victims of it. And that's just not the case. Paul addresses this issue here in Colossians 3. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles again to this chapter. Just keep it open and follow along as we kind of make our way through the first 17 verses of this chapter. The first key to being set free from the power of sin over our lives is knowing who we are in Christ. Look at verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You know, slavery was abolished in the United States by the 13th Amendment on December 18th, 1865. And the question is, how many slaves do you believe were there on December 19th. Well, legally, there were none. There were none. From the perspective of the law, all slaves in the United States at that time were no longer slaves. But history tells us that 
many still lived like slaves because they didn't know or believe that they were now free. Now the reality is those of us who have surrendered our lives to God, we are no longer slaves to the sinful person or the old self that we once were. There's been a transformation. Paul says here in verse 1 and 2, we have been raised with Christ and we are now hidden in Christ. Through Christ's death and resurrection, our old self has died and we are a new creation. We are a new person in Christ Jesus when we put our trust in him. The Bible says the old is gone and the new has come. The problem is far too many Christians don't know that or at least don't understand it or refuse to believe it even if they do. And therefore, often do not experience anywhere near to the life that God wants for us to experience. Well, last week I explained in great detail that in the spiritual realm, we are righteous and acceptable to God. And how knowing this, knowing, in other words, who we are in Christ, will set us free from the power of sin. Having done that, I'm not going to repeat it all again today. Some of you will be quite pleased to know that. However, I do want to say to Christ's followers here today, if you're not clear on what Jesus did for you through his death and resurrection, if you aren't sure what Paul means when he says here in verse 1 that you have been raised with Christ, or what Paul means in verse 3 when he says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and you're not totally sure what he means when he says in verse 12 that you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved, if you're unclear on, on what all that means, it's kind of Greek to you, it's like you're reading the original Greek, then you most likely are unclear on how God sees you and who you really are in Christ. And so I want to challenge you to go online and listen to at least the last two messages on Colossians chapter 3. And here's why. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And when we give in to sin, if we don't understand who we are now in Christ, we can be tempted into believing that we are a disappointment to God. That we are a fraud, that we're a hypocrite as a Christian. We can be tempted as a result to um, uh, believing, into believing that even though God loves us, he doesn't like us all that much. At least not the way that we are right now. That he will want to be friends and hang out with us one day, you know, when we've kind of cleaned up our lives. You know, when we've gotten rid of sin and we're living the life that he wants us to live. And you see, this mindset not only incites us to sin even more, because after all, we're sinners, so we may as well just keep doing this. We have no control over it anyways. But it also leads us to give up on God 
and particularly a relationship with God. We just sort of have this mindset, you know, he, he's disappointed in us. He doesn't want to be around us anyways. And folks, that is so unfortunate because these self-condemning thoughts are outright lies from the pit of hell. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You know, church, every day you will experience all kinds of temptations that will make you question your relationship with God. But God says, don't you doubt me on this. When you embrace Christ as your Lord, a transformation has occurred in your life. And there's no going back. You're like the worm that became a butterfly. There's no going back. Your old self has died. You are now alive in Christ. You are a new person. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. But as I said, if you aren't clear on what it means to be in Christ, or who you are in Christ, then you need to listen to those two previous messages. I also have a word for those of you who wouldn't consider yourselves to be followers of Christ. Let me ask you, what is your identity based on? I mean, as Christians, our identity is based on who we are in Christ. What is your identity based on? You see, if you boil it all down, there are really only two sources for the development of our identity. One is our culture. The other is the God of the Bible. Now, basing your identity on our culture or what other people think is problematic. Because let's face it, people are fickle. And, they, you know, and their feelings change. Politicians understand this. Many of you over the age of 30 may remember Jean Chrétien head of the Liberal Party, who became the 20th Prime Minister of Canada in 1993. And he served during a time when especially Western Canadians were not very fond of the Liberal government. Anyway, shortly after stepping down as Prime Minister in 2003, Sean decided to walk to Parliament Hill one day. It was a bright day, a beautiful day. After 10 years of politics, Sean's self-image was a bit battered and bruised. And so he looked up at the sun and he asked, Mr. Sun, <laughs> who was the greatest prime minister this country ever had? And the sun beamed down upon Jean and said, Jean, there is no doubt that you were the greatest prime minister that Canada ever had. Well, Jean, you know, he puffed out his chest, felt pretty good. And he headed home, feeling very good about himself. Well, later that day, Jean went for a walk again. His self-image was lagging a little bit. And so he asked the son again, Mr. Son, am I not the greatest prime minister Canada has ever had? And the son looked down and said, Jean, you are pitiful. 
you are a loser. This country has never seen a worse prime minister in its entire history. Well, taken aback, Jean responded, but this morning you said that I was the greatest prime minister. I mean, why you change your mind? And the son responded, this morning I was in the East. And now I am in the West. <laughs> it is not wise to base your identity on what people think. Some people determine their identity by their profession. But what happens when you retire? Or what happens when you lose your job or you're fired? Who are you then? Many women determine their identity around being a mom, and that's wonderful. But what happens when the kids grow up and leave home and lead their own adult lives? Who are you then? Some people base their identity on their looks. But what happens when you're the victim of an accident or when life time tugs at your face and over time diminishes your good looks who are you then there's only one way to determine your identity that cannot be shaken one foundation that cannot be taken away from you and it is this I am a child of God Now, you might be a child of God who happens to be a mother or an athlete or a business person. But the core source of your identity is your relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, I challenge you not to put it, this issue, on the back burner. You know, saying to yourself, you know, someday I'll get around to thinking about my relationship with God. But make it a front burner item now. Because you see, your values, the, the, the direction and focus of your life, your fulfillment, your sense of purpose, what's going to matter to you when it's all said and done, everything hinges on where you stand with God. Deal with this now, not in some future day. Anyways, that's the first key to finding freedom from the power of sin in our lives, knowing who we are in Christ. The second is setting our hearts and minds on Christ. In verse 1 and 2, Paul challenges us to set our hearts and minds on Christ. He says, given who you are in Christ... Given that in the spiritual realm, as we talked about last week, you are a brand new person in Jesus Christ, begin to live and behave in alignment with your new identity in Christ. Look at verse 12. He writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
bear with each other and forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul uses the analogy here of the taking off of clothes and the putting on of clothes just to help us to kind of understand conceptually uh, a principle that he's trying to teach here. That growing in godliness and finding freedom from the power of sin in our lives is a daily thing that we do for the rest of our lives, even as we, at least in principle, put on clothes and take off clothes. Also, that it involves the mind. You see, in the same way that we think about, or at least should think about, what clothes we will put on and which ones we will take off, he challenges us to think about whether we will offer members of our body, like our mouth, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, whether we will offer members of our body to God to use for his purposes or whether we will give it to our fleshly or earthly nature, which we referred to last week as Mr. Sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 13, this is what we read. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin or Mr. Sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. This is a decision we make to some degree every moment of every day of our lives. In Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says here, if you want to live the full life that God has for you, if you really want to be transformed and, and be the godly person you were created to be, well, then you need to renew your mind. In, in a way, you need to reprogram your mind, as it were. Deleting some thoughts and some habit patterns of the old selfish ways and instead adding new thoughts and habits in their place. Sometimes traumatic experiences such as the death of a parent, divorce in the home, mental, physical, or sexual abuse, they can burn uh, insecurity or fear or bitterness into our minds and may require much prayer and the help of others to, to find healing but Christ died and rose again to make a way possible for us to be made whole again and to be healed. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we demolish strongholds I'm sorry, arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You look at the way that passage is written, it, it almost has a kind of a violent tone to it. 
You know, we demolish arguments. We take captive every thought. And this is, you know, really trying to convey the seriousness with which we're to look at sin. It reminds us that we have the authority and the power in Christ to say no to temptation. We are not victims to temptation. We can say no to temptation. We can take temptation captive and refuse to give into it in obedience to Christ. You know, I love the little cartoon um, strip called Kathy and how her refusal to take a thought captive right away uh, resulted in her um, consuming some junk food that she really didn't want to initially. Frame one goes like this. I will take a drive, but I won't go near the bakery. Frame two, I will drive by the bakery, but won't go in. Frame three, I will go in the bakery, but will not walk by the donut counter. Frame four, I'll look at the donuts, but won't pick any up. Frame five, I will pick them up, but I won't buy them. Frame six, I will buy it, but I will not open the box. Frame seven, I will open it, but not smell it. Frame eight, I will smell it, but not taste it. Frame nine, I will taste it, but not eat it. <laughs> right. Frame ten, you know what she's doing. Oink, 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 you know. Now, you know, if you think about most sins that we commit, some of them, of course, the thought pattern happens incredibly fast, but, you know, we follow similar steps or thinking pattern. Matt Chandler says, no one starts out saying, I'm going to have an affair today. Nobody does that. What they do is they covet a little bit. If my spouse would just be a little bit more like this. They deceive themselves a little bit. You know, I deserve to be treated better than this. Or I'm really missing out. They rationalize a bit. I mean, we're only talking. We haven't done anything wrong. And he goes on to say, basically, all of these little lies and fantasies and actions begin to build and eventually lead a person to do what they never imagined they would ever do. And it's because they allowed their soul to be fertile soil for these little sins to grow. Rather than attacking those little sins and killing them in their minds. We can't directly control our feelings. And there's stuff that comes our way that we have little control over in terms of even entering our minds. I mean, we can control a lot of things from entering our minds, but some things come at us in this culture of ours that we can't control. But we can control what we think. And that is why the mind is the control center of all that we do. 
You don't do anything without first thinking about it. Which means every believer has the capacity in Christ to take a thought captive and say no. 1 Corinthians 10.13 teaches that God's provided a way of escape for every temptation. Now in Kathy's case, she pretty much lost the battle when she got in her car and decided to go for a drive. If you don't take captive the initial thought, you will probably lose the battle of temptation and you will give over members of your body to Mr. Sin. And the reality is we will lose this battle from time to time but it is not a hopeless battle. We can win more and more of these battles. If we want to live the life that Christ wants for us, we can win more and more of these battles each and every day in Christ. And if, as Paul says, we set our hearts and our minds on Christ. A third key to finding freedom from the power of sin in our lives is to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now notice Paul does not say let peace rule in your hearts. That would be an impossibility because we face challenges. There's stuff that comes our way that, you know, that just simply robs us of peace. Like Paul doesn't say here, let peace rule in your life. No, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Peace is an athletic term. It means to umpire or to ref. In a game, the umpire or the ref has the final say. So what Paul is saying here is, you need to determine who has the final say. You need to determine who will rule in your heart and in your life. When your life is unraveling, and your kids or close friends of yours that you really care about are making terrible decisions in life, and you're tempted to take matters into your own hands and set them straight and let them have it or punish them in some way in order to make them pay, who has the final say about what you're going to do? The Lord or your emotions? When you've been betrayed when you've been rejected and you are hurt and you are angry who are you going to trust in terms of where you go and how you deal with that the Lord or your emotions when you want to give up when you want to quit who do you lean into who do you trust with that decision Who's going to make the final call? Paul says, 
I choose Jesus every time. Because not only is he God, but he is peace. See, I might be frightened to death over something. Nothing seems to frighten him. Nothing, you know, I I might be intimidated by something, but nothing intimidates him. I might be just overcome with anxiety. Ain't true of him. I might be surprised by something. Nothing surprises him. I mean, he's not sitting there wringing his hands saying, gee, wasn't expecting that to happen. Paul says, whatever you are facing, wherever sin seems to be, you know, overcoming you, don't run from Jesus, go to Jesus. Paul expands on this in Philippians 4, 6. He writes, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then he says, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now notice in this passage that Paul makes a connection between anxiety and prayer. He says, the best way to learn to worry about nothing is to pray about everything. The next time you're tempted to worry, pray instead. Anytime you feel a twinge of anxiety or some other area of concern or temptation coming your way, God wants you to go to him with it directly. Tell him about it. Ask for his guidance. Ask for his help. You see, your job is not to make anxious feelings go away. Maybe they'll go away, but maybe they won't. You can't control that. So don't beat yourself up trying to. When you have a worry or you have a temptation, your job is to take it immediately to God in prayer. And you can do that. And Paul says you do that with the spirit of thanksgiving. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But you do it with the spirit of thanksgiving. And he says the peace of God which transcends all human understanding. In other words... An unexplainable peace will overtake you and will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. In other words, it'll keep you focused on who Jesus is and who you are in him and prevent you from totally unraveling in the midst of whatever it is you're facing. Now, I want you to notice, he doesn't say in this passage that the situation will change necessarily. Because you see, a lot of times in the world, the only way that peace comes to people is if their circumstances change. He doesn't promise that here. doesn't say anything about that. It says your prayer request for the peace of God in your life, that request will be answered. So Paul says here, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and you will overcome the power of sin in your life. A fourth key to finding freedom from the power of sin is to let the word of Christ dwell in in you and among you. Look at verse 9. He writes, Do not lie to each other, 
since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. One of the greatest ways that we are kept from finding freedom from the power of sin is the telling of lies, or the, perhaps even more so, the believing of lies. And of course, if falsehood keeps us in bondage, then it is truth that sets us free. When you expose the lie that a person is believing or that Satan is whispering in your ear, when you expose it with God's truth, the power is broken and the person is set free. That's why Jesus said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In verse 9, when Paul talks about not lying to each other, he's referring to more than just not telling each other um, the truth. He's also talking about not being honest and open with each other about what's really going on in our lives. It's, you know, going to our small community group or whatever and being asked, you know, how are you doing? And um, I'm, I'm doing just fine, thanks. Life is wonderful, you know. My, you know, the life could be totally falling apart, but I'm doing just fine. You know, my sense is most Christians are never, well, let me put it this way. I think a lot of Christians are missing out on the incredible adventure, faith adventure that God has in mind for them and the victorious life that he wants us to experience because there's some junk in our lives. There's kind of a dark closet somewhere, a habitual sin or something. I mean, I talked two weeks ago about pornography. Something like 75% of guys and 25% of women are caught up in pornography. It's like this dark closet over there, and because that's going on, there are so many people today who they don't feel worthy to do anything outside of just get, doing the job. The idea of volunteering, the idea of making a difference in someone else's life isn't even, you know, an option to them. Because there's something in a dark closet that they're not willing to deal with, to bring into the light. And so they keep it in the dark. And which is exactly where our enemy Satan wants it to be, by the way. Because he, you know, isn't content that you just have that little problem. He'd like to morph that into a major problem. You know, he'd like to see porn destroy your marriage. You'd like to see it ultimately just destroy you completely. And, you know, if you don't deal with it, and you keep it in the dark... That's the trajectory you're on. And so this is why Paul writes here, do not lie to each other. In other words, don't keep habitual sin hidden. Bring it into the light, not with the entire group. Bring it into the light with one person, one godly individual that you respect and trust. And seek out the help that you need. Because when you do, the power is going to be broken 
the healing will begin. And you can be set free. That's why Jesus came. Now, the only way to spot falsehood is to know the truth. And that's why Paul writes in verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. To dwell means to feel at home. It means to saturate. And you know, what's, what's really sad is that um, my sense is that, I mean, the people in our society, I mean, they haven't got any time for this at all. They just think it's, you know, outdated, useless, irrelevant. But that thinking is, is seeping its way into the church as well. We're not convinced that this is actually God's word. And the foundation upon which we can live a full and a happy life. Well, a fulfilled life. Happy is... (laughs) And so for the scriptures to dwell in us, that's what it's talking about. It means that we're reading it. We're meditating it. We have this conviction this is God's word. That, he's, that he wants to actually speak to us through this word. And to begin to reprogram some of our thinking, some of the lies, expose some of the lies that we're latching onto that are destroying us. It means that we study it regularly, that we memorize it. We're, we're coming to services like this regularly. God bless you for coming, but you know, I hope this isn't once a month for you. Because unfortunately, that's the statistics. Average evangelical Christian now in North America goes to church less than, well, it's a little bit more than once a month. I mean... Working our way through the scriptures, helping us to understand what God's word said is a big priority around here. And we see it as one of the fundamental steps of discipleship, and that's why we want you here. And why you need to be here. The reality is I'm convinced that one of the major reasons God's kingdom is having such limited impact in the Western world is because far too many Christians, you know, they listen to the word preach. You know, they listen to it multiple times, sometimes even on, 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 online. You know, sermons from all over North America. And they basically walk away and, you know, they rate the sermon. That's kind of what, when you begin to ask people, oh yeah, that was a great sermon, you ought to listen to this. You know, they rate it. This was a, this was a 10 out of 10. But that's where it stops for way too many Christians. Which is why at the end of the services, on a pretty regular basis, when you stand and we're about to pack it in, and after you've heard a sermon and we've, that's come out of the scriptures, I ask you to think about those two questions. Lord, what are you saying to me? And what do you want me to do about it? Is there an attitude you want me to change? Is there a lie 
that you've exposed through this teaching that I have to stop believing? Is there some... Is there an area of obedience that I need to step into? Because, see, when Christians, or at least people who call themselves Christians, begin to live that way, our world is going to be a different place. A way different place. And our lives are going to be awesome. (laughs) Our marriages and our families are going to be awesome. Okay, the fifth and final key to finding freedom from the power of sin in our lives is to do everything in the name of the Lord with thanksgiving. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? Well, it means to do it on his behalf. It means to do it as his representative, according to his purposes, his will, his plans, and in his authority. And so when Paul says here, whatever you do, whatever you say, he's saying, remember, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are representing him wherever it is you go, whatever it is you do. You are representing the heart of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the purposes of Christ. You are representing the truth of the written word of Christ. Even in the small things, the mundane things of life, the the little acts of kindness that you do, the little acts of service behind the scenes that nobody even knows about, like cleaning up or washing dishes or caring for a child in the nursery can be done in the name of Jesus, can represent his heart and his purposes. It can be an act of worship. When you pray in his name, you are praying according to his will and his purposes as revealed in the scriptures. Many Christians don't get this. For example, in John 14, verse 14, Jesus said, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Wow. Now, a lot of Christians read that and go, all right. I love this. This is good. I think I'm going to follow Jesus. I mean, look at this. Ask anything, and I'm going to get it. Now, make no mistake. Jesus won't do it if you're asking for your agenda. If you're asking for your will to be done. And then simply adding in Jesus' name as a tag-along at the end of your prayer. No, he said he would do anything we ask in his name, which means according to his will, his purposes, his character, his promises, which means if we want our prayer to be effective, it is important that first we actually know 
or try to discern what his will and his purpose is, which brings us back to Paul's call here in verse 16 to let the message, the word of Christ dwell in us and among us. When I was in my late teens, my dad, who was a developer, wasn't able to attend an important meeting that was held at his lawyer's office. There were some important people there. And so he asked me to attend the meeting, and he let those who would be there know that I would be his representative and I would communicate his interests and his perspective. And he arranged for me to have his authority in signing the documents, which was one of the major reasons we were coming together. Now, if I'd gone into that meeting and instead of representing my father's interests and his plans, and instead decided I have a new idea, I have a better idea, and presented my own thoughts, I would have misrepresented him. In the same way, when we misrepresent Christ, when we carry out our agenda rather than his, and we do things according to our will or, our, or on the basis of our authority rather than his authority, we are misusing his name. And when we do that, we are breaking the third commandment. Did you know that? The third commandment, according to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11, says this, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Some translations say you shall not take God's name in vain. Misusing his name is not about using his name as a swear word. Even though that is something we shouldn't do and of course is you know, just out of respect for his majesty and holiness. No, misusing his name Taking his name in vain is about misrepresenting him to other people. Attempting to use his name to see our will be done rather than his will be done. And what that's all about, friends, if we really want to live our lives, if we want to be represented as Him, what that's all about is surrendering to Him. Paul says, we're to give thanks as we do everything in the name of the Lord. In verse 16, he calls us to sing to God with gratitude in our hearts. In verse 15, he says, be thankful. In Philippians 4, 6, which we looked at a moment ago, he writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. A thankful spirit is what he emphasizes here. And a thankful spirit is a person who is surrendered to God. A person who places their life completely in God's hands. A thankful person is one who does not demand his own way. If you think about it, if you're demanding your own way, if you're thinking about, you know, all, you know, that you've got coming to you, you ain't going to be a thankful person because sure, sure, uh, what's a better word? Um, 
surely you won't get your way all the time. Right? And that won't make you very thankful or happy. A thankful person is one who does not demand his own way. His right to be happy, to be noticed or applauded. It is a person who chooses to see things and the circumstances of life from God's perspective rather than from man's perspective. A person who, in Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, chooses to give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances, because the world is filled with lots of evil things like war and abuse that we should never be thankful for, but he calls us to be thankful in all circumstances. Bob George tells a story of a young couple named Reed and Marion who truly lived this out in their lives. Reed was one of several fathers taking a group of girls on a camping trip. Their six-year-old daughter, Wendy, asked if it was okay if she traveled in the vehicle of a friend. And her mother said, sure. It was raining, the streets were slick, and the driver of the car in which Wendy was driving lost control, leading to a horrific accident involving 26 cars. Unfortunately, no one in Wendy's car was hurt except for Wendy. She was thrown from the car and was instantly killed. Weeks later, Bob was with Reed. And he asked him how he and his wife were dealing with Wendy's death. And the way that Reed responded gets to this matter of thankfulness and gets to this matter of choosing to see things from God's perspective. Reed said this. He said, Marion and I look at it this way. What if God had come to us six years ago and made us an offer? What if he'd come to us and said, Reed and Marion, I have a little girl, a daughter of mine, named Wendy. Now, she's only going to be on earth for six years. But I need someone who will love her. Someone who will look after her and teach her about me for those six years. And then I'm going to take her home to be with me. And so I wonder, would you like me to give her to you? Realizing that these are the conditions. Reed smiled and said to Bob, you know, Marion and I both would have said, oh yes, Lord, give her to us. And that's just what we feel God has done. He said he always knew Wendy. God always knew that Wendy would be on earth for only six years. We have chosen to be thankful for every one of those six years that Wendy enriched our lives. We miss her terribly, 
We've cried and we will cry many more tears. But we know that we're going to see her again and we thank God for it all. You see, this is the heart of what Paul's saying here in our scripture lesson. Even in the midst of, of great tragedy, this couple is living at peace because they have chosen to surrender all rights to a sovereign, loving God and to be thankful. They have chosen to embrace God's perspective. They have chosen to find contentment in their Lord. And you know, there is nothing that breaks the power of sin in our lives. There is nothing that empowers us to live the life that we were created to live than a thankful heart and a life that is surrendered to God. And Paul writes, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May it be so in each of our lives and for the sake of those who need the Jesus that we know and love. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Let's just open up our hands to God. Let's just ask him those two questions. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is one thing you want me to do about it? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. And Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, dying in our place, rising from the grave to give us life, a new life. And Lord, the hope of a full life. And yes, we live in a world, Lord, and where sin abounds and we live in a world where there's hardship and tragedy, disappointment. And Lord, we all have and likely will contribute to that one way or another. But thank you for the reminder that we are your children and that you are in us and you are with us and that together we don't need to give in to sin 
We don't need to add to the carnage, to the grief, to the despair that's going on in the world. Each and every day, Lord, we can take a small step in the direction, Lord, that you so want us to take. And so, Lord, I pray for this church that each and every person will realize that they are a child of the King of Kings. And together with you, Lord, we can experience life to the full. Oh, may it be so, I pray, in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 